Welcome to the Art of Curation, Flipboard show about the art and science of selection. I'm your host, Mia Qualiarello. I'm a digital curator, community builder, and Flipboard's head of creators. Each episode, I interview tastemakers from different fields who excel at the art of curation. How do they get started? How do they organize themselves? How do they curate for impact and more? Because if you think about it, curation is everywhere. Whether it's DJing, a dinner party guest list, or your social media feed, curation is the DNA that makes or breaks experiences. In fact, it's hard to fathom life in this information age without the art of curation. Today, I'm talking to Paul Miller, aka DJ Spooky. Paul is the ultimate creator. He's a composer, a DJ, a multimedia artist, an editor, an author, and the curator of one of Flipboard's most interesting magazines called Semantic Infiltration. He's completely immersed in environmental and social issues and creates art to press those issues into the public consciousness. In this interview, I talked to Paul about how he turns information into art and how he organizes his media diet to fuel his many projects. He schools me on the etymology of the word curation, and I learned that his intentionality around selection includes his complex process for choosing green tea. In fact, you'll hear him drinking a warm cup of it periodically throughout this interview. Everyone's recording at home, so thanks for your patience with any clinks in this audio. I love this chat because Paul seems to think deeply about everything, and his intellectual and artistic curiosity have no bounds. His sources and references themselves create a canon for the avant-garde artist and those of us who want to be. So let's get to it. We could start this interview in so many places, but since this is a podcast about curation, I wanted to begin there. How does curation fit into the mix of all the things that you do? Well, first and foremost, curation is kind of a fascinating scenario because if you think about it, the idea of how you gather information and then create a kind of a context for it is really powerful. Uh, There's always an uneasy tension between context and content. And when you start to think about the way people think of looking at, you know, gathering things, um, it, curator comes from the term cura, which is kind of related to cure, amusingly enough. So the funny thing about information and how we pull things together is that anything goes. I mean, we live in a world where collage is kind of our basic kind of etymological foundation, like and when I say etymological, I'm thinking of like language and how we create meaning. Uh, when I speak a word or when you speak a word, we have a, a whole reference of files in our minds that we're kind of creating an associative context. But so too with images, with articles, with the sort of uh, foundational information that we use to put to get, to, together everyday meaning. And so curation is kind of a fun way to kind of give people, I think, a stronger context for things. And right now, we're in a world where context is mainly based on social media and the digital arts in some capacity. So that's why I love Flipboard. Um, I'm in the middle of writing a book, and I've been using Flipboard to gather articles. Like we were just talking about the idea of the curator or curation, uh, the Latin term cura means kind of like concern or study or figuring out different approaches to pulling together things. So so too, it also relates to healing, which I also find kind of amusing that the term cure and curator are kind of tangentially associated. Um, so it's like you're healing by pulling together information. Um, but it, the book is called Digital Fiction, The Future of Storytelling, and I've been in, working on it for a while. The pandemic obviously made things go a little bit elastic 
it was a hard pivot in the middle of or at the beginning of the pandemic where everyone stopped working uh, for, at the normal office and began working from home and everyone's sort of digital profile and digital kind of life frame uh, got deeper and more intense as people pivoted to um, putting everything about their life online as the pandemic started just going like raging. On one hand, it's been fascinating. If you were just to do an anthropological study of the last year and a half, people are posting everything online. I mean, everything, every little aspect of their life, but you know, they're already doing elements of that, but the pandemic accelerated and deepened that. My, my Flipboard magazine is called a semantic infiltration, which is a linguistic term for when uh, you repeat certain ideological phrases throughout different media systems. So that the book is fascinated with um, kind of what I view as computational narrative. And what, what does that mean, you may ask? Uh, computational narrative is simply like a story or an algorithm that then creates kind of recommendation elements. Like when I say recommendation elements, uh, the simplest way is like if you watch one YouTube channel, it'll start recommending you other YouTube uh, videos and links. There's an algorithmic approach to uh, most major platforms because they need to keep you engaged. They keep you engaged by continuously recommending things for you to read, review, or look at. So you're in an attention economy, and it's just gotten deeper and crazier. And most of the people who own these platforms made billions and billions of dollars in the last year alone. How do you protect yourself from what the algorithm might be serving you? Yeah, I mean, the, the notion of living in a recommendation engine uh, ecosystem is pretty powerful. I use this in the book. Say, for example, when people become radicalized, they're in a specific ecosystem. Right now, we're in an ideologically charged moment just about getting vaccines. And it's been fascinating because the right wing has used that as a tool um, and hijacked uh, a lot of the narrative about science. It's just fascinating to see. Uh, how deep down the rabbit hole we've gone in such a short amount of time. So those are two examples, people becoming radicalized or people literally disbelieving in science because of a uh, Facebook post or something. Right. Um, and it's, it's really, really wild to see. So semantic infiltration is kind of what I call sort of an information vaccine, you know, kind of trying to get people, while I'm putting the book together, I'm giving people some of the overview of the, of the themes of the book. And it's willy-nilly. I mean, I'm reading voraciously, so I'm just looking at crazy articles all over the place. And I wanted a one-stop shop where I can go back and review them. So while I'm researching and while I'm looking at stuff, some of it might be political, some of it might be about the the mathematics of algorithms. Some of it might even be about the architecture of the human mind, because that's also a sort of a neuro... There's another term called computational neuroscience that goes to the heart of this as well. These are all things that are very front and center as we move deeper into 2021, uh, you know, sort of information pandemic. When it comes to collecting and curating the data on which you build a book or create a song, how do you ensure that, you know, you're basing your piece of art on trustworthy information? Like, how do you think about sourcing? Sourcing is really a powerful tool. Um, and that means, you have to dig a little deeper and you have to also allocate time. I mean, time is a precious and scarce resource in our data-driven society. Um, to me, DJing is curating. It's like you're looking at and pulling together all these records. You're pulling together a mix. You're making that mix part of the basic fabric of like a collage. And then you put that mix out into the world. So the quote-unquote authentic 
early origins of a record or vinyl or stuff like that, you know, it all goes back to this idea of authenticity is a reflection on you and your taste. I definitely am a firm believer in um, a stress test. Like if people contest the information or want to dispute it or go back and forth on it, I'm totally into that. Um, but I, I feel like at the moment I'm gathering a tremendous amount of information. So it's not necessarily all of it is not going to be the best or worst. And a lot of it will be descriptive or analytic and giving people questions and tools for critical thinking. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's whenever I read, I'm always going to say, wait a second. Okay. That's one perspective. Let me look at another perspective on the same topic. And then let me look at another perspective. Um, there's there's stuff like Blinkist, which is an app that's resonant with you guys, or Pinterest. Pinterest is more visual curation, like you're always scattering images. Uh, Blinkist is a sort of news summary that gives you a little bit of like perspective on whatever you're reading. But there's also you know uh, you know more stuff like Morning Grew, which is like curated reading, um, et cetera, et cetera. So. You know, these are all things that are in our in this time. The ecosystem that you read from can very, very deeply affect your perspective. And I'm I'm trying as much as possible to have a broad uh, perspective and do the research while I'm doing the research. All puns intended there. So, in the National Geographic video you sent me, you talk a lot about your taking on climate change as one of your causes by converting data into art. You talk about. Mm-hmm taking a conversation with a scientist and turning it into a string quartet or topography of shattered glaciers into a composition. How do you do that? And why even take this approach? I feel like data has opened up a new dimension in culture uh, because we have the math and we have a clear, rigorous mathematical approach to things. But the funny thing is that means it's become a funhouse mirror of a, or a hall of mirrors at this point, because nobody can really, have a definitive um and anything that i'm saying somebody could easily come up with the exact opposite and have a mathematical theorem and proof and so on just depending on how you compute it and that's the way economics works that's the way of any kind of mathematics dealing with humans who are we are not rational actors and even the idea of rationality itself is a joke i mean i don't feel rational uh, when I walk into Whole Foods and choose to get uh, green tea or something, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's a lot of choices and decisions that and research that I would do to go into specifically a Whole Foods, which is owned by Amazon and Jeff Bezos and all this stuff, and or it was you know, uh, John Mackey, for example, the guy who started Whole Foods, but he sold it. Anyway, all that will go through your mind when you walk in, and then you see a huge row of green tea, and you have to choose which one. What your choices and decisions? That's called a decision basket in economics. And so, too, is my kind of uh, choice of articles when I go pick and choose things that I put on uh, the flipboard. But, yeah, when I work in National Geographic and when I think about interdisciplinary approach, data is still a critical tool. It's just that you can make it become a building. You can make it become, uh, you know, a genetic sequence. There's an artist named Martin Buehler at uh, MIT who took the genetic sequence of COVID and made it become uh uh, electronic music, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, anything goes right now. And as long as it quote unquote makes sense, and I, I'm using that in air quotes there, but um, it's a deep moment because I feel uh, because so many of us don't have a, a, what I view as 
a good uh, immune system for mental uh, pain. Let's put it this way. I don't think we're in the middle of a biological pandemic as much as we are an overlap of the biological pandemic and a mental pandemic, Uh, anxiety, uncertainties, misinformation, um, all of which can be data tracked. It's kind of wild. There was an article that I put in my flipboard a little while ago about the 12 major people online that are causing a tremendous amount of misinformation and the amount, the sheer volume of havoc psychologically um, that they're, uh, how should I put it, that they're creating. Uh, things like that are really powerful. So when I say, can a conversation with a uh, scientist become a string quartet? That's a conceptual art initiative, but our conceptual art places the concept front and center. And so does my curation on my Flipboard stuff. So the art of selection is an art form in its own right. And um, that's where I feel we need to kind of understand the selection process and the, the psychology of selection. That's what I was talking about. You, like, I was just using a metaphor there because I'm really into green tea. Like if you go and look at a wall of green tea and there's zillions of different varieties of it, uh, which one would you choose? You know, um, things like that. <laughs> how, how do you choose your green tea? <laughs> well, I look at ones that are like more from a Japanese kind of foundation. And then um, because Japan has such a really good relationship to um, how they put together their green tea. In fact, I'm drinking green tea mixed with seaweed kelp now. Actually, it's my morning brew. But yeah, how do I choose my green tea? I'm always a fan of the ingredients and I'm a fanatic about looking that up. So if you're traveling or if you're at a restaurant, that's the first thing I'll look at. That's kind of, I'm kind of picky about it because I just don't, because a lot of tea comes in these weird little plastic bags now. And if you get one that has a plastic bag, that's a real, you know, when you put, um, for lack of a better, when you put the plastic bag in hot water, for example, you get, um, uh, certain chemicals that are outgassed from the heat uh, and the plastic, and that gets in your water, for example, and then it becomes a problem because they're like endocrine disruptors and other weird toxins and chemicals in the plastic. And most people don't even think about that. It's But again, I'm trying as much as possible to always have a intentionality pretty much at every level. Um, and yeah, I like green tea, but I also am a big fan of health, being in good health. And tea is one of those tricky ones. And this probably all sounds too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> no, I um, I love how intentional you're describing your decisions. I recently picked a bottle of wine based on the label. That I like the design of the label. <laughs> how do we become more intentional in the choices that we make? These are questions that there's no there's no single silver bullet or answer. Um, and again, I'm a flawed human being like anybody else. I make crazy decisions. When you when I pick an article, I want someone to feel like there was a human being behind it, not just an algorithm. And that human being said, hey, check this out. It could be a pr- provocation. It could be something that's of interest. And I read voraciously. So I'm always putting articles in just for my morning or afternoon reading and sometimes my early evening reading. So these are, it's constant. I mean, if anybody noticed that I, I tend to update my flipboard several times a day because I'm reading a lot. How is operating as a DJ, you know, curating music different from curating content? It's actually the same. I mean, I actually feel the common denominator is storytelling. Mm. And you can tell stories with sound or you can tell stories with uh, voice. One is not mutually exclusive to the other. And news is kind of um, just one component of how we tell stories to ourselves these days.
I'm curious about what systems you've set up for yourself to feed your curatorial goals for whatever project you're working on. You know, it's always about the practicality. Mm -hmm. uh, is something practical um, or not? And um, a lot of the practicality of reading is that it has to be of interest for the theme or the topic I'm dealing with at that time. So these are all issues that kind of linger over my reading. I'd say I get up usually around 6 a.m. If you want, let me give you it. it sometimes it might be better to give you an overview of how, like I get up at six, I usually go for a run or play tennis in the morning or some, you know, sometimes later afternoon. Then I come home, take a quick shower. Um, I usually listen to the news, a, a quick thing, sometimes in the shower, sometimes while I'm making tea in the morning or something. Uh, I listen to stuff like NPR. I listen to stuff like Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Um, I'm a big fan of the Young Turks. Uh, that's a really uh, cool sort of progressive left-wing uh, channel. Then I'll listen to other sort of, um, you know, online podcasts uh, that are dealing with some science. A lot of times I'll listen to, um, man, there's so many channels out there. Um, so it's, you know, right now, I'd say that's my morning. And then I usually have to deal with business and meetings and stuff for at least a couple hours, I'd say 7 a.m. to around 10 or 11, then I take a break. It's 11 o'clock now, for example, and this is my sort of flex time, and then I'll give myself a quick break. Um, I go for a walk, uh, usually, and I have meetings walking, and so I bring headphones with me, but then I'll listen to books and podcasts and other things while I'm walking, and then rinse and repeat for the afternoon. And then I, to, I try and keep myself to schedule where I wrap up around 6 o'clock, uh, because otherwise, this stuff can go on forever and you should give yourself living time and free time and things to just enjoy. Got it. What other platforms do you use? You know, I was, I was working off of a whole bunch of different platforms at the beginning, but then there became kind of a Darwinist ecosystem uh, consolidation, you know, where I was like, you know, I'm spreading too much out. So I realized it's better to consolidate into one area where I can have a one-stop shop and be able to review and look at the articles. And that actually became helpful. I, I realized I was a little bit too spread out. I used to use Pinterest a little bit. I used to, I dabbled in multiple platforms and then slowly just pivoted more and more to Flipboard because it, you guys have the same functionality as a lot of these other apps, but the reading centric focus was more pertinent to what I'm doing with my book. Um, you, and you can also put images and other things. So you guys have the same functionality as a whole bunch of other platforms. Um, I just have mixed feelings about Instagram and um, the philosophy of Instagram is that, that everybody's posting and trying so hard to show you who they are mm -hmm. that you get bombarded. Same with TikTok. Um, I respect those uh, platforms, but they're for my everyday practice. I don't need to engage them as much. TikTok would probably is something I should do a little more of to, and to be honest, this stuff takes time and time is a scarce resource. So I, I have not checked it out as extensively as I should. And uh, I'm sure there's people out there be like howling, how can you only be using Flipboard when you should be on all these other platforms? And I'm like, yo, man, it's only 24 hours in a day. So once, once stuff is out in the world, you just got to let it roll. I mean, that's what sampling is about. It's collage, appropriation. Nobody owns anything. It's who gets it to market first and who has a more robust relationship with the mass scalability of it. I'm not someone that wants to keep information on lockdown. I think information wants to and needs to and will be ultimately free. And everybody is just going to have to realize that we, we're still applying an industrial era psychology of scarcity to information, which is actually 
I, that's how people like Bill Gates have made money. It's creating these artificial scarcities of their software. Google did a different take on it where they made everything open source, but they still control aspects of it and they monetize your engagement with the open source. These are all different ideologies of software. But uh, for my purposes, I'm a big fan of people like Lawrence Lessig at Harvard or um, Lawrence Tribe. He also is at Harvard. You know, I think open source is the, is the best way for humanity to move forward. And we've seen a disaster with the vaccines, for example, because all the companies that controlled the copyright and patents on the mRNA technology were not willing to let places like India or third world countries develop open source technologies. And that's led to massive amounts of death just, just because of copyright. I mean, it's incredible. Like India is one of the world's largest producers of vaccines, but they weren't able to use the copyrighted material. And the end result was tens of thousands of people died unnecessarily. At least that's my take on it. So you've been making art since the 90s. So how, how has the evolution of your art paralleled the evolution of information technologies? I feel like we could all, I could always do better. And I need to, I'm always learning and trying to figure out new approaches to things. So I would say I've evolved mainly from the viewpoint of trying as much as possible to keep track of the different ecosystems that are going on and what's happening in the, the world that I'm dealing with, which is music, which is tech, which is art, science, uh, philosophy. Those are places where I actively read and keep up with stuff. And those are areas of the culture that are just churning right now. There's been an insane amount of information. We've, human beings have generated more information in the last several years than our entire species have generated throughout you know, centuries, millennia. And most of it is, you know, selfies, faxes, nobody makes a fax anymore, but I'm just meaning like useless information. And these are things that it's just heartbreaking to see. It's hard to get an overview of it because it's, you're living in, a, it's like a fish getting an overview of the ocean that they're in. Mm -hmm. um, and the fish might say, you know, I don't really see anything, but somebody's standing in a different angle say, hey man, you're actually in the ocean. But if you're in the ocean, you might not see the ocean. <laughs> mm -hmm. For someone who's new to your work, where would you recommend that they start exploring? Um, I'd say my first book is called Rhythm Science. Um, that one generally is, I think, a good portal into my thinking. It's a collage-based project. Um, I made a series of uh, records that went with the book. And it was a real pleasure to kind of get people to... I mean, the record I, I worked with and recorded a whole bunch of... Um, experimental avant-garde electronic music uh, to go with it and worked to track down rare recordings of writers, artists, musicians, making statements about their idea of collage and then made a collage of the collage. Those are things that just were lingering in my mind um, when I was working on that. And it's with MIT. Most of my books are with MIT uh, and I've been publishing with them for a while. Um, the, the next book that I'm working on currently, that won't be out probably for like a year. So that's that. But yeah, I'd say my books are a good place to start. And in terms of my music, I actually think my mixtapes are a good place to start. Infrequently, I put them online. This pandemic has really made me rethink about public engagement. Kind of putting, there's so many people doing mixes on SoundCloud, MixCloud. Kind of touched on this earlier, but I love to end these interviews with like a speed round of what you're reading, watching, and listening to that's made your your career or your life richer or more fun. Um, mm -hmm. So let's put maybe the news diet out of this picture and what are some shows and podcasts 
movies and music that you would recommend that anyone experience that's made a big impact on you? In terms of writers and other artists, um, I would say people like on one hand, <clears throat> on one hand, I have been looking at people like, uh, geez, where to begin? William S. Burroughs is one of my heroes. Um, there's also uh, writers like Margaret Atwood with you know her her work on sort of the near future of like it's relatively grim stuff. Um, she's cool. She's amazing. And then science fiction writers like William Gibson. Uh, Samuel Delaney, those are all writers. Uh, then for art, in terms of artists, uh, Andy Warhol is a huge influence in my thinking. Uh, so as people like uh, David Hammond, I'd say those are probably my top two uh, for art, uh, contemporary art. I and mean, there's more historical or older stuff. Um, but most people don't do research or cast like the 20th century at this point. So uh, <laughs> I'd say in terms of 20th century, those two, David Hammond's and uh, Andy Warhol. And then on the other hand, from our 21st century art, uh, I'm a big fan of sort of people who are pushing the boundaries about architecture and design. People like the Astor Gates, uh, he's doing some great work. Um, then also in terms of more current writers, there's a woman named Malka Older. Uh, she has a book called Infomocracy. Uh, it's an amazing science fiction novel that came out a couple years ago. Ramez Nam, he's an Egyptian American science fiction writer. He's doing a lot of, and, um, Shishin Liu is a Chinese writer whose novels are all set in the future of Beijing. Uh, those are amazing writers doing amazing stuff. Um, and they influence my thinking quite a bit. Very cool. I'll have to check them out. Um, Paul, is there anything we haven't discussed that you would like to bring up? Yeah. Uh, well, the, I mean, here's one thing. I mean, I'm an African-American. I am a heterosexual male. Just, sometimes it's, it's good to just, you know, everybody's thinking with the pronouns and your orientations and things like that. Uh, so I, I, like my pronoun is he, him, uh, he, him, human, I guess you could say. Uh, but with an African-American globalist twist, um, when I say globalist, I mean, sometimes the American psychology, both for African-Americans, white Americans and so on, is that people don't realize how interconnected everything is. And that's heartbreaking to see in America because we're from such a, coll a kaleidoscope or a collage of humanity. And we have people from every possible walk of life, every possible race, culture, uh, and so on, that sometimes we tend to get compartmentalized or we get lost in our own little silos or our own ecosystem. Um, and that's heartbreaking. I, I'm somebody that likes to move between worlds. And... Um, you know, that's, that's what makes life interesting. Um, and as much as possible, I try to celebrate that. We're in a time of retrenchment where democracy itself is coming under attack from so many different angles. Um, and democracy is, trust me, it's very, very cool. Um, you do not want to live in an authoritarian, lunatic you know, situation where some, some dear leader or like North Korea or whatever is running around. You, you really don't. <laughs> um, and so as much as everyone loves to complain about America, um, I've been to a lot of other countries and I think America has a lot, tremendous amount of good things to offer. We just need to understand one another a little better. I wanted to ask if you're an optimist or a pessimist about the future. It sounds like you're an optimist. Oh, I'm an optimist. Um, I think the future is good. The future isn't what it used to be. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> If you want to see what Paul is curating every day, he can be found on Flipboard at, at DJSpooky5000. 
That's flipboard.com slash at sign DJSPOOKY5000. If you want to connect with Paul, you can also find him on Twitter at DJ Spooky. Thank you to the Rosanna Caban for editing. If you want to find out more about Flipboard, where enthusiasts are curating stories they recommend across thousands of interests, download the app or head over to our website at flipboard.com. Anyone can be a curator on Flipboard. Simply create an account and start flipping to share your ideas with the world. <laughs>